0: This morning's text is found in Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 28. Please feel free to follow along in your Bibles. And if you haven't got your Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you. Ephesians 4:22 through 28. Put off your old nature, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful lusts. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new nature... Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, But rather, first let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may be able to give to those in need. I'm passing over verses
1: 26 and 27 this morning and taking them up tonight at the Lord's table. You may recall I preached a sermon on those two verses a couple of years ago entitled Satan Seeks a Gap Called Grudge. And uh, there is much more to say, but I didn't want to say it Sunday morning. So I'm putting it uh, in the evening and we'll meditate on those two verses tonight. We will focus this morning on verse 28 concerning the matter of stealing and working. One of the points that I made to the hundred people who were in my living room and dining room on Friday night for missions in the manse. We had a great time together was this. You can't fulfill the Great Commission unless you know biblical doctrine. And I gave two reasons, but one of the reasons I gave was this. The Great Commission says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So the Great Commission involves teaching people to be obedient to Jesus, to do everything he said should be done. But not all obedience is satisfactory. What we want is what I call evangelical obedience. That is obedience that is free, willing, glad from a transformed heart that sees the beauty and rightness and goodness of the commands and doesn't do them begrudgingly or under constraint or under threat. So that's the evangelical obedience that we must have in order to fulfill the Great Commission. And my argument was, you cannot have evangelical obedience without evangelical doctrine. So, for example, how do you... Get people not to steal. Well, you might say to them, don't steal. And they'll say, why not? That's what I do to get what I need. And you might say, because God said, thou shalt not steal. And God's God. And they might stop stealing. But are you sure they're obeying? Is that evangelical obedience? Might it not be that they have uh, gotten scared that there's a new deity they hadn't heard of and that he might punish them if they do this thing they really want to do? And so by dint of willpower, they stop doing it. Is that evangelical obedience? Does that fulfill the Great Commission? Haven't you just shoved a cork into the bottle of their... Fermenting greed. The Great Commission is not fulfilled in such cases. And the reason is that we don't give the commands of Jesus and call them forth as fruit instead of work. If there's going to be evangelical obedience as fruit then we must plant the tree of faith in the soil of biblical doctrine. Doctrine about God in his holiness. Doctrine about man in his bondage to sin and corruption. Doctrine about the cross in its all-sufficient atoning dimension. Doctrine about the regeneration of the Holy Spirit and how he can change people by power. Doctrine about the necessity of a life of obedience, all of grace, and all received by faith. So how then do you teach people not to steal? You do what what Ephesians did. You just let Paul the Apostle be your example. I really believe all the epistles of the New Testament are examples of how to fulfill the second half of the Great Commission. First, preach the gospel and win converts and baptize people. Second, teach them everything Jesus commanded. But how? Well, the way the epistles do it. How is it done in Ephesians? Three massive chapters of theology. Massive theology. Chapter 1, 2, 3. And then... Paul is willing to become as practical as dirty diapers. Don't lie to each other. Tell the truth. Don't hold grudges and go to bed when you're mad at each other, husbands and wives. Don't steal from each other, but work hard. And on he goes. But but how has he done it? He's given us first in this text that we're on a little... A theological model up here, verse 22, 23 and 24, before he gets to this list of of specifics. So he he builds this theological foundation in the first three chapters. Then he gives us a little theological model of how to appropriate that in obedience. And then he moves into the specifics. And that's what we ought to do, too. You remember what verses 22 to 24 are all about, don't you? In verse 22, we are to take off the old man, be crucified. This old man should be dead. You strip it off like a carcass. And that old man is the dead, uh, corrupted, evil self that steals and lies and, and cheats and is greedy and covetous. And you, you then put on, verse 24, you put on a new person. And this person is created by God. In the likeness of God, according to truth and not deceit. And so obeying the command not to steal is something like that. It's not just turning over a new leaf. Becoming a Christian and starting to walk in paths of obedience is not just turning over over a new leaf by an act of willpower. Christianity is a miracle. If you're a Christian, you're a walking miracle. God has performed a miracle of creation upon you. You didn't just turn over a new leaf and started walking in a new direction. If you did and you succeeded, all you are is a Pharisee. With the white outside clean, the cup is nice and clean, and inside there's just rapaciousness and wickedness and dead man's bones, according to Jesus, when he talks about these nice, shiny Pharisees who never steal. Without evangelical doctrine, the best we can produce at home is legalistic capitalism from verse 28 or legalistic syncretism on the mission field. If you don't have biblical doctrine underpinning your ethical efforts not to steal, not to lie, not to hold grudges, all you can become is a Pharisee. And you may look Peachy clean to people in the world and inside no better than a devil. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you cross land and sea to make a proselyte and they become more of a son of hell than you are. I mean, he had language for peachy clean people that is frightening. And so what I'm saying is all of our efforts to teach these moral things, don't lie, don't steal, don't hold grudges, is only going to produce Pharisees in this church and Pharisees on the mission field unless I can make plain and you can grasp and believe evangelical doctrine about God in his holiness. Man in his sin, the cross in its sufficiency, and the power of regeneration, all of grace received by faith. And so if you ask me then, well, how do you overcome lying? I answer, by faith. How do you overcome grudges? By faith. How do you overcome stealing? By faith. I am crucified with Christ. That's just another way of saying I've stripped off the old man. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's just another way of saying I have put on the new man and the life which I now live. I live how? By faith. If you wonder how not to steal, how to drink orange juice to the glory of God. How to do your daily work, how not to lie and how not to keep grudges. There is one evangelical answer. Trust God. Now, I hope that before we're done, we're done. I can spell out the specifics and I'll give you some specifics from my own life in these past days of how to fight the fight of faith against the temptation to steal and to lie and to hold grudges. Verse 28, therefore, ought to be read in the context of verses 22, 23, and 24. If there's no renovation within, as verse 23 says, no renewal of the mind, then when you get to verse 28, you may do your best not to steal, and you may have a measure of success, but you will only be a Pharisee, a whitewashed tomb. And that isn't what we want. Let's look at the verse. I see three commands in this verse. Not one, but three. First, let the thief no longer steal. Second, rather let him labor. And then literally working with his hands, the good performing what is good with his hands. And then third, I'm going to paraphrase it like this and let the aim of that labor be not to get, but to give. Don't work to get, work to give. You see the progression now in these three commands? First, you can steal if you want to in order to have. That's one way of life. Second, you can work in order to have. That's the second way of life. In other words, these are two ways to give vent to your greed and your covetousness. You can do it illegally with stealing or you can do it legally by working. Stealing is the illegal way of expressing greed and working can be a legal way of expressing greed. And they're all sinful. And therefore, Paul doesn't stop there, does he? That's where Americans generally stop. If you've earned it, you can have it. It's yours. And Paul doesn't stop there. That may be the American way. It isn't God's way. God's way is a third level of attainment by the power of the Holy Spirit Don't work to have, work to have in order to give. This is a revolutionary teaching. I hope this hits home to you today. This is a revolutionary thought about your life. It turns your whole life into an act of grace. It makes your whole life an experience of and a display of the generosity of God. Let's look at these three commandments one at a time. They're all important. They all have something to say to us as Christians. The first command in verse 28 is let the thief no longer steal. Now, in view of its attachment to verses 22 to 24, what are the things we can say about stealing here? Well, three things. One, stealing is part of the old man, the old nature, the old self, the old person that should be stripped off. If you link verse 28 with verse 22 and verse 22 says strip off or take off the old man. And verse 28 says don't steal anymore. You know, you're talking about the same thing. Stealing is part of that old person and should be stripped off. And where did that old person get corrupted and ruined? By desires, according to verse 22. And where did those desires turn wrong? By deceit, it says in verse 22. And where does deceit come from? In the wilderness, Jesus was tempted by the devil. You remember what he said? The devil said to Jesus, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread because you're hungry. What he really said was, look, why don't you just short circuit the way of the cross why don't you just do an in-run around self-denial and hard, suffering work? I mean, you have the power. It would be easy. And Satan comes to you and he says, look, why don't you just take it? Why don't you just run an in-run around hard work and honesty and labor? Just take it. You can have it. Nobody would know. Satan tempts us to steal from our employees with unjust wages. He tempts us to steal from our employers with shoddy work and with long coffee breaks. He tempts you to shoplift at the store. He tempts you not to report all your income on your income tax. Where does stealing come from? Jesus said, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornication and theft. That's where it comes from. It comes right out of the heart. Didn't come from the moon. It came from my heart. That's why I steal. My heart is corrupt. And why is it corrupt? My desires are bad. And why are my desires bad? Because I'm blinded and hardened in my sin and Satan has free access and he deceives me about what is valuable in the world. So that I really believe it is more valuable to have this little pleasure and security than to have a clear conscience and to obey God and to love people. Awesome deceit in the world. If we could see things clearly, we wouldn't steal That's the first thing we can say about stealing. It's part of the old deceived self. Second, stealing, brothers and sisters, can be forgiven. It's so plain here in verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal. He's talking to thieves at Ephesus. The thieves in the church at Ephesus. There's thieves sitting in the pews listening to this letter being read by the elders at Ephesus. And he's saying, now guys, ladies, don't do that anymore. Which clearly implies you're saved. You're forgiven. You don't have to go on stealing. There's possibility of being a new kind of person now. And I can imagine an old Recent convert from a life of debauchery and thievery standing up in the service and say, wait a minute, elder. All my life I've stolen. And I think it's too late for me. I can't shake it. I can't get it out of my conscience. I find it almost impossible to resist in the stores and marketplaces. I think it's too late for me. And you know what that elder's going to say to him? He's going to say. Don't you remember the story the apostle told us when he came through here just a few weeks ago and what happened to Jesus on the cross at the end? There was this thief all his life. He'd been a rotten thief and he got killed for it. He got hung for it. And in the last breath of his life, he looks over to Jesus And he says, have mercy upon me. When you come into your kingdom, remember me. And in the twinkling of an eye, by the authority of God and the power of his cross, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. It isn't too late. Thieves can be forgiven in the 11th hour. That's the second thing we can see. And the third thing is. Stealing must be overcome by faith. Now, here we're back to that point. Stealing must be conquered, not by your own willpower merely. That makes Pharisees people who boast who rise up above sinners and say, I thank you, God, that I am not like this publican. Pharisees are produced by willpower. Broken and humble saints are produced by grace through faith. Now, what truth must you have faith in to conquer stealing? Why, you could tell me the promises that will kill stealing in your heart. Listen to this one from Hebrews 13. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, and here comes the truth that you must believe to conquer the stealing. I will never fail you or forsake you. Hence, we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. What can man do to me? Now, do you realize what this text says? This text says every time you steal. You are an unbeliever in this promise. The Lord of lords and King of kings, who is strong enough to rule the world, wise enough to design the DNA and the Milky Way, and sovereign enough to govern the drop of every dead bird in Bangladesh, has said to every one of his children, I will never leave you. I will never fail you. I will never forsake you. Can you believe that and steal? No. You have to be a disbeliever in the promises of God to steal. That's why it's so horrid. That's why Paul said, thieves do not enter into the kingdom." Because they don't believe God in their day-to-day walk. They don't believe his promises. Now, let me give you an illustration of how this week I was tempted to steal very genuinely. And how I fought the fight of faith. Mid-September, I got in the mail, just like most of you probably who live in Minneapolis, A bill from the Minneapolis Water Works and Sewer Department. And the bill was $84.20. And at the bottom, in a little box, it says, after September 30, pay gross. And then it said, $88.41. $4.21 more. And I said, I'll pay that. And I laid it in a pile. And forgot about it until Friday. Friday. That's, uh, October 3rd. I was writing my check for all these bills that I had to pay and I got to this one and almost just listened to the voice that was saying, you always pay your bills. You're a good citizen. If you date your check, September thirty, they'll let it go. They won't give a hoot. You won't lose four of God's dollars. And then another little voice, the the new John Piper, who struggles to stay alive and fights for for his breath at these times, said, It's your fault for not standing it. And it's not unjust of them to require more for delinquent payments. And the Spirit of Christ is always submissive to the governing authorities when no sin is involved. And a clear conscience is more valuable than four dollars. And your Master has bidden you not to steal. And He will never leave you nor forsake you. And He will work all things together for your good. And the thought came to my mind as a specific illustration of that. If God thought it were good for you, he could heal the cavity in your tooth and save you $40 anyway. There are a thousand ways God can take care of his children when they're honest and obedient. And a thousand ways he won't if they're not. So I fought what I believe Is the typical fight of every day of our life the fight to believe the promises of God? Will He take care of me if I do right? Will He make my life better if I give up four dollars instead of keeping four dollars? Of course He will! He's God! And God won the victory. And I feel good and clean about that now. Two days worth of a clean conscience is worth four dollars. And so the first commandment of this text is don't steal anymore. Believe the promises of God. The second commandment, we'll deal with these much more briefly, is this. Rather, let him labor, working with his hands the good. Two simple observations. Number one, God has ordained work as a way of getting what we need, not stealing And work is not a curse. Have you ever been taught that work is a curse? Not here at this church. Adam was put in the garden to tend it before the fall. The fall didn't bring work into the world. The fall made work frustrating, futile, and boring. That's what we should try to overcome by the Holy Spirit. Work is a gift from God to bring meaning into your life, to image forth God, the workman in the universe. That's the first thing we learn here. Work is the God-appointed way of getting what you need in the world. And second, not every work is fit for a Christian. That's what I see in this half of the verse. It says, rather let him labor, and then it qualifies, working good with his hands, not bad. There are jobs that involve people in doing bad. You shouldn't have a job like that. If you do, you should resign. So everybody in this room should test your vocation. Does it involve you in evil? If so, quit. And God will take care of you. Find a job that involves doing good. And I'm not telling you to get in Christian professions. That's not the point. We couldn't be the salt of the earth and the light of the world if there weren't 95% of us in secular jobs. That's where you belong. I mean jobs that involve you in evil. If it does, quit. If you have to lie, quit. If you have to steal, quit. If you have to sell a product that is inferior and you have to say it's superior, quit. You are God's employee First, not your bosses. You will have to give an account to God for what you did with your working life. First, not anyone on this earth. If you can't do good in your job, quit your job. That's the second thing that this text says. Let him labor, working with his hands. Good, only, not evil. Now, the third command in the verse, we'll close very briefly with this, seems to focus on something new. In the first command, he said, don't steal. In the second command, he said, work hard to get what you need. Both of those focus on what you should do. But the third command focuses on why you do it. What's going on inside. Here's what I think he's saying. The purpose and the goal of God for your life is not attained when you stop stealing. Second, the purpose and goal of God for your life is not attained when you start working for a living in order to have and possess what you earn. The purpose of God for you is attained when you work to have in order to give. Now, here we are back at this revolutionary idea. No longer steal to have. No longer work to have. Be a Christian. Work to have to give. The world works to have, 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 have. That doesn't take any Christianity. All it takes is moral Americans. If you want to go to heaven, you must become a Christian. And Christians are people of grace. And people of grace delight in experiences of grace from God and displays of grace to others. Christians are not people that swallow grace and let it digest Period. There are people that conduct grace like electricity to other people. And so Paul is saying, view your whole life, your secular job as a work of grace, a channel of grace to other people. Money coming in, going out, in and out, in and out. A modest and simple home and food and clothing and education for your children, of course. But no more! No more. Otherwise, we're just the world. And the world looks at us and says, so what's the big deal? You're just like everybody else. Have, 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 have. Only when we live to give will we look like Christ who gave his all. Verse 24, what does it say? Put on the new man which is created in the likeness of God. And what is God? He's a fountain of grace. Make your life a fountain of grace. Why? with this I close. Because if you catch on to the genius of what faith is, this is the way you want to live. I wonder if you would agree with this definition of faith. Faith is the delight of the soul in the experience and the display of grace. Faith is the delight of the soul in the experience and the display of grace. You know what that means? It means this. First, by faith, you can be content with what you have. And by faith, you will be discontent with what others don't have. Because faith... Is the delight of the soul in displays of grace as well as experiences of grace. Faith must be gracious because it has lived by grace. Faith must overflow in grace to others. Faith is addicted to this promise. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Faith is addicted To that promise. I want blessedness in my life. Therefore, I must be a fountain as well as a cistern. I must overflow. And so I simply commend to you here at the close of this service. Is your life a display of grace? Eight to five. As well as when you come to church or teach Sunday school or do your ministry after hours. Have you made your work life? A work of grace. When people study your life and see why does that person work. Do they see two things? One, they're doing good by their work. And everything they earn is strategized to meet as many needs in the world as possible. A modest base of operations at home. And then a fountain to the unevangelized, the unhealed, the unfed, and the unclothed. Make your life a display of grace. Do you steal to have? Don't. Do you work merely to have? Don't. Be a Christian. Live to give. Let's stand for prayer. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, I pray for this people whom I love and you love. And I see in their eyes a longing to be this kind of authentic person who's not just the -the run-of-the-mill American materialist, but has risen above it and no longer works just to have, have, have. Oh God, make us real. Make us like Christ. We want to be authentic so that when the world looks, they see a distinct thing. And we know that without the power of the Holy Spirit causing us to believe, In your promises, we're going to be the slave of covetousness. Free us, O God. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray and for his great glory. And all the people said, Amen.